and to his word. Lord, we've said some really rich things today. Surely if our hearts have been melted by the gospel, how can we not say, Lord, that you are our everything? You are all. And Lord, we also, in the same breath, we would say, help us to love you as we ought. And so, Lord, we thank you that the gospel is our hope, that the gospel is a hope for us, that you will take our, our hearts that are so focused on ourselves and you'll turn them toward you and that we will find our greatest delight and satisfaction in you. And surely, Lord, today in being with your people and being here in this place, our hearts are warmed even though it's cold and it's middle of winter. Many of us have not been feeling uh, great physically, Lord. Nonetheless, we find great joy and delight in you. And in your truths, Lord, they are like food to our souls. And I pray, Lord, that we would have a spiritual appetite today and that you would help us to be nourished as we look into the rich insights of your word. Ask for help today, Lord, in the things that I say, that you would all make it accomplish your purposes, Father, that we might know you, rejoice in you, and walk in your ways. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we begin a new calendar year, I still can't believe it's 2013. Uh, I've already written 2012 several times by mistake. Uh, I thought it would be a good time in the next couple of weeks to consider the mission of our church. Our church was established in what year? 1815, thank you. And interestingly enough, a church with that kind of history, we of course have a wealth of history in our church, and we also have rich heritage to celebrate. Recently, I came across a printed copy of uh, some of what is called the 1885 Articles of Faith and Covenant of the New Village Congregational Church, Long Island, adopted in February 28, 1885. If you ever want to read through that, I have a copy of that here with me. Interestingly enough, I noticed that the year of that publication and what was affirmed in that publication, which, by the way, a lot of helpful, wonderful things were affirmed, I found out that the pastor at that time is Reverend Otis Holmes. This is the first uh, portrait that we have in our library of the various pastors who have served here in this church and imparted the word. He was there for two different uh, periods of time and an uh, interesting-looking fella. And uh, he lived on the corner, by the way, behind the bank, T.D. Bank, yeah, the, the, the one that's right on the corner, the green one, right? Uh, he lived right up on the hill of that corner. Uh, that's where he used to reside. Anyway, I digress. We've gotten into history here. By the way, who was the, you would nest, imagine the, the President of the United States in that year, 1885, was Grover Cleveland. So we're talking about a great history, when even in that time of the history of the church, they were affirming wonderful gospel truths. And we are the, the, we have those who have inherited this kind of rich heritage as a wonderful church. Now that's, a, that's a blessing. The danger of being in an older historic church, however, is that churches like ours will have a tendency to gradually shift our focus away from being effective in the mission that Jesus mandated to a ministry of just maintaining traditions and sustaining existing ministries. And so it's worthwhile every so often to step back to ask ourselves important questions like, what is the mission of our church? 
Are you able to succinctly answer that question? Can you explain to somebody, what's this church all about? Uh, What's the goal toward which we are striving? And for what are we aiming as a church? Well, last fall, uh, our our elders board has hammered out a revision of our mission statement, very similar to ones we've done in the past, but it, it gives us a summary of not only the mission, which is in your bulletin there, uh, it's, it has the core values. It also has our vision statement. And I'd like us to really sort of review some of these things and try to think through why we think that these are valuable uh, uh, summaries of what we're about as a church. Because our intent here is to make clear we have a destination that we're moving toward. We have a direction that we're moving into. And we want our church to remain, and our church members, to be unified as we stay on mission for Jesus. And so our ministry is to be measured, again, not in how busy we are as a church, and we were busy during Advent, weren't we? That's not how busy we are. That's not the way to measure our church. It's not the size of our attendance necessarily from week to week, but whether or not we're actively achieving our biblical objectives. And last uh, several weeks of Advent season, I spent a good number of weeks dealing with the issues of the overall uh, understanding of everything is about God's glory. And so I'm assuming you've sort of heard some of those sermons and that you have understanding about why it makes sense to give God and He should be glorified in all things and how we as a church can sort of flesh out how to glorify God. We'll talk about that this morning as we sort of think through further aspects of the glorifying uh, component of um, giving God the, the honor He deserves. Now, one way to, a class, to clarify the mission of our church is to examine what I'm going to suggest to you is a helpful summary in Colossians chapter 1. So I want to invite you to find your way to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking at our memory verse and sort of several verses beyond that. Page 1400 in our Pew Bible. In this passage, we understand that the Apostle Paul, he's going to lay out his objective in ministry. And he does so against the backdrop of a number of people who have been critical of him, who have tried to undermine his ministry, false teachers who have infiltrated the church of Colossae, where he had uh, uh, planted that church, started that church. And so Paul's spelling out his own mission statement so that the church might understand, what's your real objective here, Paul? Why were you here? What are you trying to do to see happen in this church? And so if we look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, through chapter 2, verse 3. And we proclaim him, that is Christ, which he said in the previous verse, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. For all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, and in whom, that is, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. And there he goes on and on and on. I can't go much further than that. So I want to start off with the question today, what is the goal of gospel ministry in our local church, or any local church it ought to be if it's a Christ-honoring church? 
Well, Paul was crystal clear. I hope you saw it there in chapter 1, verse 28, that we may present every person, not just man, meaning all men alone, but every person, used in a generic sense, every person complete in Christ. As he ministered in the local churches, Paul's goal was simple. He sought to present everyone to whom he ministered the gospel of Jesus Christ. His goal is that they would embrace that gospel and that they would then, by that gospel, be brought to the point where they are mature or complete in Christ. The word complete there means the end, uh, to arrive at the destination, as it were. And so the idea is that if we have become new in Christ, we are to be brought to the point where Christ wants us to finally move toward completeness in him, maturity in Christ. And so that's the real to be the fruit of gospel ministry in the local church. And you'll notice that he mentions there different aspects of the gospel, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, as he says there that God delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the wonderful truth of the gospel. He also refers in verses 19 and 20. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth, things in heaven. The whole idea is to talk about the gospel and, to, and so proclaim the gospel to bring people to a situation where they are mature and complete in him. What does that mean? What does it mean to be complete in Christ, to be mature in Christ? Well, there are many indicators in Paul's writings. We read earlier this morning in chapter 4 of Ephesians, this mentioned that pastors, teachers ought to use their gifts to impart truth and teach so that the saints have been equipped so that they can do works of service. That is, you and, you and me, all of us. Saints does not refer to some special group of people who are somehow associated with a miracle after they die and all, the, all of the convoluted things that they've come up with in the Roman church, but no, we're talking about saints means people who are set apart like you and me. We're all saints if we're believers. We're to be involved in works of service to build up the body of Christ until we all attain unity of the faith, true knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature people to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What's he saying? That we are to what? Grow up in all aspects unto Christ who is the head. That's what it means to be a mature Christian. A mature believer is to be equipped so that the gospel in such a way we have our hearts designed now and, and, and impacted so that we want to joyously serve Christ and we want to build up other believers around us. And mature believers share this core of, of truth that we, 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 we cherish together and we understand it, we, we celebrate it that we are, have a personal, intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. We know Christ. It's not just something we talk about. And the ultimate test, of course, of Christian maturity is what I like to call Christ-likeness. That a true, mature believer is going to be like Jesus Christ. You say, in what way? Well, clearly, if our lives are going to be conformed to the image of Christ, which is Romans eight twenty nine, it's going to mean that at some point... The gospel has had such an impact on us that we become more and more like him and similar to him in imitating him as much as we are capable of doing so as mere creatures. For example, we are so amazed and our understanding is so been deepened by the love of God 
and because of the appreciation for the gospel of grace, that the gospel of God's love for us as rebellious, ruined sinners has been so amazing upon us. It bears the fruit in us of what? That we would love God in return. And there's this evidence of a love for God that is evidence of the fact that we're becoming more and more impacted by the gospel and becoming mature is that our love for God increases and our love for other what? Rebellious, ruined sinners also is evident in increasingly in our hearts and lives. Rather than being caught up merely in ourselves, our hearts are very much willing to sacrifice for other people around us uh, who we love out of the love that God's giving us in our hearts. And I think of all the different fruit of the Spirit. If I'm like, more like Christ, then will I not be not more loving? Will I not be more filled with joy? Is that what you see happening in your life incrementally as time goes on? Do we see ourselves becoming people who sense that all is well because I and the Lord are on good terms and we are relating to each other in a close, intimate way. Whatever situation I'm in, things are okay. There's a sense of calmness in facing whatever I deal with in life with a sense of all is well because things are between me and Christ are good. That's a joy. It's a sense of joy that characterizes our hearts and lives. That deepens over time and increases. Is there peacefulness that sets apart our lives more and more because of our gaining insights in the gospel of Christ? A sense in which we are become more patient. You say, wait a minute, patience? Patience? Yes. I made the mistake one year of praying for patience. I've warned people about that. Uh, you pray for patience, prepare yourself for a lot of difficulty that doesn't go away for a long time. How else do you gain patience? I prayed that my freshman year in college. Big mistake. My roommate, unbelievable guy. I mean, it was just, I won't go into details. He, uh, he had some issues. So did I. But I was praying for patience, so I got him. Anyway, patience. Do you increasingly find yourself becoming more patient? Is that characteristic more evident in you, becoming more like Christ? Boy, was Christ ever patient in dealing with those disciples, dealing with his enemies? It's amazing the more we think of Christ. And then, of course, kindness and goodness, that we imitate God with a generosity that comes out of our heart, that we have a, a desire to work for the benefit of other people. That just is how more and more our hearts are, are turned in that direction. That's not typical of the world, let me tell you. Is there gentleness in our hearts, of faithfulness, and that what I say and commit myself to do, that I'm going to follow through that as best I can by God's ability and God's grace. And that I'm known as a person who, my yes is yes, my no is no. Is that more evident in us as time goes on? And then, of course, being self-controlled. That our passions and our desires are governed by the fruit of God's Spirit within us. These are the kind of things that we're talking about when it becomes more like Christ. And Christian maturity is rooted, and it has to start somewhere. So if Christian maturity is the target toward which we're aiming as a church, then my next question, and point number two here, and I'm just real quickly touching on these things, the second thing we want to ask ourselves is what essential components of ministry are required to bring people to maturity in Christ? What did Paul say I'm going to invest my energies into in order to get to that goal where people become really serious about not just saying they're Christian, but that they become more like Christ as a Christian and see their lives transformed by the gospel? Well, Christian maturity is rooted in our understanding and our thinking. 
I'm more convinced of this as I, the older I get, the more I'm convinced it is so fundamentally true. Paul invested a great deal of time and effort doing what? Look at verse 28. Teaching, teaching, teaching. He labored to instruct believers in the truth of the gospel. He labored to explain what it means to be in Christ. He labored and went on and taught them again and again that you must grasp what Christ has done, what God has done in Christ for you, and who you are in Christ in light of that. And we will never grow into Christian maturity apart from significant learning of the gospel within the word. And so the inward gospel is to bring about a transformation that comes about, why? How? Romans 12, verse 2, by renewing of your minds. That's how transformation takes place within us. And this is why Paul, again and again, when he's trying to write these churches, he's trying to help them understand, let me remind you what the gospel teaches, let me remind you what God's done for us in Christ. He says probably about ten times, to the church in Corinth. Do you not know that the da 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 that you that no none of these people will enter the kingdom of heaven? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know? And the implication is, yes, you know this. I've already gone over this with you, but I'm going to repeat it for you to make sure you understand and understand your mind to become renewed with these truths. The believers in the church of Corinth. Paul wrote another interesting challenge in chapter 14, verse 20. He says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Wow, that's a good goal for us this year, right? Lord, help me to not be a child in my thinking. Help me to move forward in my thinking and become mature, understanding more and more of what the Word teaches. Now, one component of ministry, our church must excel in is teaching. And so we as elders have reaffirmed again and again, you'll see it in our our value statements there, uh, the things that we have uh, committed to in terms of our uh, value statements is that we have said, listen, we are committed to expository preaching. That we are proclaimed in the word of God is to be done so that it draws out the meaning of the text. We don't want to just preaching and teaching of the word that just takes a verse here and takes a verse there and we just make it into anything we want to make. We want to draw the meaning out of the text. We want us to understand what does the word say, not what do I think or whoever else is preaching or teaching. We want the word to be understood because the scriptures are what? God breathed. They are written by God. God is the author of the word of God along with the human, uh, through whom he used human agency, of course. And that if we're ever going to be thoroughly equipped for the good deeds that God expects us to do, we must what? We must hear, know, and understand and live out the Word. So we want every member of our church to be interacting with the Scriptures. Because it is the God who has called us to glorify Him and to know Him in Christ. He wants us to know Him, how? Through the Scriptures, as we understand what He's communicated to us and revealed to us in his word. And so we need to read the word, reflect upon the word, and clearly I hope that's one of your goals in the year ahead. It's not just saying, well, I'm going to go to church once a week. That's a good goal, yes. But could you add to that goal, I want to memorize the verse that we're all trying to memorize. I'm going to really actually say it several times during the week. I'm going to try to hide it in my heart. I'm going to try to review maybe a couple of previous verses we've gone over. 
I want to try to spend some time reading and reflecting in the Word myself. Maybe a little bit more than I did last year. You know, it's not something you have to say, well, I have to do it every day. If I don't, shame on me. No, it's not guilt-induced. It's something I do because I need a renewed mind. I need it. I want it. And I want to know God. And I know God, He speaks to me in His Word. You see, there are many gospel implications. In, the, in our struggle against sin, we learn of those things in the Word. Our standing with Christ, we learn insights of that into the Word. In the Word. And the identity in Christ, we find that so clearly spoken about in the Word. And our relationship regarding um, uh, with our, our, those of people who we, our homes, the relationships with people in our workplace, relationships with people in our schools or in our, our, uh, our church, these are all insights taught as the gospel implications in the Word of God. Even Jesus. As he thinks about his disciples, as he thinks about those who will follow him in the years ahead, as he's praying to the Father in John 17, what does he say? He understands the critical role of the Word of God in bringing people to the point where they are actually uh, brought to fullness of maturity in the faith. And so he says, praying to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. The Word of God is essential in bringing part that kind of process. Even Jesus acknowledged that. So we're committed as a church to provide ongoing biblical instruction for everyone. And isn't that what Paul said? Colossians 1.28? Not just for a few people. Not for just those who have higher intelligence. Not just for those who are the, the younger ones. They have so much to learn. No, we all have to learn. We all need to continually learn and relearn and go back and learn again. The various aspects of wonderful insights regarding the gospel found in scripture in the old and new testaments and notice if you will and this is a very important point you must hear me out here now when we talk about the emphasis of teaching paul's extensive instruction is not given merely so that paul could accomplish the goal of saying okay i want a church where everyone is savvy in doctrine where everyone can rattle off an answer to you and say, this is the answer, this is the answer, this is the answer to that. Where some people can say, well, this church, they're all astute in theology. They know all the answers, biblically speaking. Now, he's not opposed to that, but what? Well, hear me out here. Paul taught the Word of God, and we as a church leadership, we want to teach the Word of God so that the gospel teaching would transform hearts and lives. It's not enough just to have a bunch of biblical facts stored away in our minds. That's not the point. Knowing vast amounts of Bible knowledge does not equate with maturity in Christ. I'm going to repeat that statement. Knowing vast amounts of biblical knowledge does not equate with maturity in Christ. Now, this has driven home to me. One of my Christmas presents, we have a joke in our family, where I will buy something on sale... And I'll, it's usually a book or something I really want to have anyway, so it's an excuse to say, well, I'm going to get another one, but I'll wait till Christmas, and that'll be a gift, so I'll buy it for myself. And so I tell my wife, here's something you can give me for Christmas. So I got the book, I opened it up, a new book by Paul Tripp, and it's written to pastors. And I need to hear these gospel truths. And what he's saying in the book is he acknowledges his own sorry story about what he was like as a pastor, which he said he realized there was a point in his life where he was a very angry pastor angry at home. He was one way at church and another way at home. 
And there were some major issues going on in his heart and life. And he talked about the fact that he said for many, many years he, he assumed, and I think it's true about many of us who have had the privilege and opportunity to go all and get further training in an academic situation, like a seminary, that when you go off and you study theology, you come home and you say, I know a lot of theology. Therefore, I am spiritually mature. There's a danger in that. And he finally had to grapple with the fact that here's one of his good points I realized that I need to remind myself, we all need to remind ourselves, biblical maturity is never just about what you know. It's always about how grace has employed what you have come to know to transform the way you live. That's a big difference. That's a big difference. That means I don't just know doctrinal truths and facts about, well, God has done this and Jesus has done this and Jesus is uh, hypostatic union and all these kind of, you know, I know a lot of doctrinal truths, but if I know all these truths and it's not brought down to how I'm living my life every day, I am not moving toward Christian maturity. Christian maturity is I am living out the gospel because I know and believe the gospel and it's made a huge difference in my life. And so one of the things Tripp says is, you know, he says, Adam and Eve, now did they disobey God because they didn't know enough? That wasn't their problem. What? They weren't ignorant of God's commands. They stepped over those boundaries, right, as we often do. Why? Because of the desires of their hearts. Because they wanted to be God as you and I often do, right? I just want to get what I want to get. I just want to do what I want to do because I want to be God. Similarly, it's not a matter of ignorance. And David, of course, did not get involved in this illicit relationship with Bathsheba and conspire to have her husband killed because he was ignorant of the biblical prohibitions against adultery and murder. But David did what he did because at some point he didn't care what God wanted. And so that's the struggle we all face. And maturity in Christ comes over time as we embrace and incorporate gospel truths not only into our thinking, but also into our hearts and apply it to our own lives and see the significance of the gospel, where we are living and what our desires are, what our motivations are. As a matter of fact, look at the prayer Paul prayed. I find this interesting in chapter 1, verse 10 of Colossians. You still got open there, Colossians 1? So often our prayers are praying for, Lord, take care of this person. Lord, help this situation to go smoothly so we don't have any problems, right? We always sort of trying to make, make our what? Our will be done, you know? Make life work for us, God. Look at Paul's prayers and think of the, how this applies now in a situation where, what is he looking for? He's looking to see the gospel come down to where they live everyday life. So he says, I pray that they might, uh, verse 9, they'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will, all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He's praying that they might walk or live every day as a pattern of life in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing the Lord in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Are those the things that you long for in this new year? You say, Lord, that's where I want to see my life progress. That's where I want to see the changes take place. I want that to be said of me as I'm moving more and more in that direction from where I was last year. That's what I want my life to look like. That's what I'm praying about. That's what I'm praying for my kids. That's what I'm praying for people in my growth group. That's what I'm praying for our church. Those are wonderful things to pray about. Why? Because we know the gospel is more than just things we know in our heads. It means that we take our extensive 
knowledge about what the Bible teaches about, what God's patterns are, and we realize I am falling short of those. It exposes my sinful heart. The gospel continually is confronting me saying, you don't realize how many depths of sin is operating in the depths of that heart of yours. And to expose that sin and then what? Find hope, find grace, find forgiveness, find love in Christ in the gospel. And I preach it to myself and say, my, I will never ever meet up to God's standards that Christ did. Therefore, I am loved. Therefore, I have found hope. Therefore, I find that, Lord, help me, rescue me from myself. And that's what the gospel does for us again and again. No wonder Paul was passionate about proclaiming Christ. You sense that, do you not? In chapter 1 of, of Colossians, he, he says, I'm going to talk to you about Christ. And that is the most Christocentric, Christ-centered chapter almost in the whole Bible. And so... Here is Paul speaking against the false teachers there in Colossae who have minimized Christ, who have brought him down to the point at which he's a created being and some intermediator between us and God is this creature of Christ. They're like, no, 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 Christ is the creator. Christ is our hope. Christ is our everything, as we said, sang earlier in our service today. I appreciate that so much. Paul's not looking for secret knowledge, some popular message that will help him attract a big crowd. His business and our business as a church is to proclaim Christ and proclaim the gospel so that it's Christ who was dying for our sins according to the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised again according to the scriptures on the third day, and therefore as we continually understand the implications of the gospel, of those gospel truths, it leads us to celebrate a sense of wonder and amazement that I read the other day with J.I. Packer I've really been getting this whole idea of adoption. It's just an amazing concept. Uh, as I think more of what Catherine's doing there, and I realize what amazing things go on in our world, people adopt people, and I begin to think, what does it mean for, for adoption in Christ? And J.I. Packer comes with this great phrase. He, he summarizes, what's the message of the Bible? In three words. I couldn't do that, by the way. I wouldn't even try. But he uses three words to summarize many of the truths of the gospel, and that is this. Adoption through propitiation. Propitiation is another way of saying a a God-satisfying sacrifice offered so that God's wrath can be appeased and dealt with. Adoption through a sacrifice offered to appease God. Propitiation. His point is what? That we, as we understand the gospel, we are drawn to be in wonder that God is our Father. We have a relationship with Him. We cry out to him, Abba, Daddy, Father. We relate to him as a, as a little one relating to a, 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 a person who has adopted, taken him, and loves him, takes care of him, and enjoys that security. So, how do we go about that? How do we help people grapple with the implications of the gospel? Well, there's teaching. Let me quickly now touch on another thing about how we as a church, I'm convinced we must incorporate into our fellowship here and what we're committed to doing, along with Paul, to try to make sure the gospel is something that really does impact our lives is we all need help in hearing every so often admonishment. Did you notice that in verse 28? There's teaching and there's also admonishing every person. Both are necessary. Both must be kept in balance. Along with this biblical gospel-centered teaching, we need to have admonishment. What does admonishment mean? It means to warn someone. Were you ever warned as a kid? You better not do that. You're going to burn your hand. Right? 
good warning. Still did it anyway, half the time, you know, oh yeah, right. But we, we don't, we don't, we don't, didn't take to heart warnings very well, often some of us as kids growing up. So you learn the hard way. But the scripture has many warnings in them, and we as people need to offer warnings, or it, it means literally, admonishing, means to put something in mind. I'm going to bring this to your attention one more time. Make sure you're hearing what I'm saying. Make sure you hear what the text, take it to heart. Put it in your mind. Turn to Acts 20, just real quickly here, show you how Paul applied this concept of admonishment in his ministry. He's, uh, page 1325, uh, Acts 20, Paul's summarizing his ministry with the Ephesian elders. They're really tight. They spent some three years together, and they really had a lot of, of uh, great memories together and big impact from ministering together, and Paul's probably never going to see them again, so this is a very poignant and powerful moment he shares with them. And so Paul says in his summary there, verse 21, 31, excuse me, Acts 20, 31, he reminds those elders, night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. You see, when I warn someone, or when I confront someone, when I speak into their life truth they need to hear, I do it not arrogantly. And I don't do it as if I know what I'm talking about, and I got my act together, and you don't know, you need to get straightened up, young man. I don't do it like some... Uh, you know, military sergeant. I do it as a sense of, I love you, I care about you, I'm concerned about you, and I, my, my concern and then my depth of my understanding is, I need to hear this truth, you need to hear this truth. We all desperately need grace. We all desperately need God to be working in our hearts and lives. Paul says, I did it with tears in my eyes. That's how much I care about you. I would speak and say, put this in your mind. Take heart on this matter. You're, you're missing something here. So Paul's challenge to Timothy, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he says this, Timothy, you need to be sure you proclaim the word, proclaim the gospel, proclaim the truths of the word of God as you're ministering in that church. But he says, do so, you need to reprove, rebuke, exhort with what? Great patience and instruction. Sometimes you're going to have to slow down with people every so often. You're going to have to take the word of God and show them, listen here, I don't think you're catching this. I don't see, see how the connection between the gospel is. If this is true, then how much more true should this be and how this is operating in your life? Do you not understand and see that? So we must never omit the warnings of the gospel. Everyone is called to repent. Not repent once only, that is essential to come to Christ, but there is an ongoing repentance because the gospel constantly is calling us to repent. That we're called to have a change of mind, to have a change of heart, leading us to turn from sin. We all need to have that as a regular part of our, our experience in Christ. And we need to continually warn people about the consequences of sin and the wrath of God. This must be a steady aspect of our church that's also equally balanced by encouraging truths taught from the Word of God about the, the wonderful hope we have in Christ and the, the Christ-centered gospel the enriches, enriched grace and the fact that we as, uh, can find biblical truth to help us find hope in Christ because we know as we turn from our sin, we need help and we find that in Christ. Not enough to tell a person what to avoid. Not enough to tell a person what the dangers are ahead. We must, as a church, be faithful to explain what Christ is to us right now. 
We need to explain that Christ and the gospel implications are, it is verse, 29, verse 27 of Colossians 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. There is hope because of Christ. He takes up residence in us. He lives in us. He enables us to do what we otherwise could not and would never do. So we do this not in a careless, haphazard way, but Paul says we want to teach, we want to admonish with all wisdom. Oh, how we need wisdom, don't we? As a church, as individual Christians, Lord, give us wisdom to deal with situations. They get very complicated. People make complicated choices. They've got a lot of confusion in their minds and hearts. There's a lot of assumptions that they make. Lord, help us to have wisdom, how we handle the word. Our church is not about creating people who know canned answers to questions about theology, but they fail to see how the gospel helps them battle against temptation, how the gospel helps them find hope in the grace and love of God as the sin of our hearts is exposed over and over again by the word of God. And so I say again, as a church leadership, we affirm that the gospel ministry of this sort is not easy. I hope you hear me say that. It is not easy. Every parent here, I hope you'll hear me say, gospel ministry is not easy in your home. Every person who's seeking to win someone to Christ at work or you're for some other relative or you're at your school, gospel ministry is not easy. But let me just say this. Gospel ministry doesn't bring about immediate results, and it is wearisome, and yes, it is tiresome. And Paul acknowledges that as he just talks about that. Look at verse 29 in Colossians 1. He uses the word there from which we get the English word, agonize. I always associate that with planet fitness. Agonize. Do I want to be here? Not really. But is it fun? Not really. I always go around and talk to the guys I, I interact with there early in the morning, about 6, 6.15 in the morning. I say, are you guys having fun? They're like, is this fun? This is work, man. I'm agonizing here to keep at this thing. But gospel-enriched ministry where we admonish and warn people and where we speak and bring things to their mind again and instruct them with wisdom and patience, it requires diligence, it requires persistence and sustained effort. Don't give up, you as parents. You're concerned about what you see going on in your family life, in your marriage or in your children or your family in general as an adult. Don't give up. And in our church family, don't give up. These are things we must continue to persist in and continue late to labor on in these ministries. Why? 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, it's not in vain. It's not in vain. There's eternal value to what we're doing in our ministry. And part of the agonizing labor, may I suggest to you, is not just in teaching, not just in admonishing, but turn with me just a page or two to Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. I find it fascinating, and again, this goes back to one of our core values as a church. We can't just say, well, it's just a matter of just simple proclaiming. We just need someone, a brilliant teacher, and they need to be somebody that can speak so clearly the gospel truth, and everything will be fine. No, my friend, that is a false assumption. We must, it is necessary and essential that we must bathe everything in prayer. And if you're not praying for your kids, if you're not praying for your wife or your husband, or you're not praying for your uh, brothers and sisters in this church family, if you're not praying for me or you're praying for your elders or deacons or you're not praying for other people around you that, you're lo- that are lost, then my friend, you've lost the sense of what? It's an agonizing struggle 
in gospel ministry, as we look to see God do what we cannot do, we are dependent upon him, and it's easy to give up after a while. Say, I'm not going to pray for that. Forget it. This person is beyond hope. No. Look what he says there about Epaphras. Epaphras, Colossians 4.12. A member of that church there in Colossae, Paul commends him and says, this Epaphras guy is always laboring earnestly, those are very significant words, for you, how? In his prayers. And what's he praying? That you may stand complete, mature. I hate the translation perfect, but that's, he means you've reached the end of the goal. Complete and fully assured in all the will of God. I look back, and I'm telling you, as I've gone through so many old things in my family, in the home I grew up in, come across writings from my parents, and I've become more aware of how much I was prayed for. How, what a rich heritage I have. And on my wife's side, her family, all the prayers of her, even her dad, even now, 92, he says, I go out on my porch and I pray for my children, I pray for my grandchildren. He's agonizing, he's laboring for the gospel. He hasn't given up. He has such a rich heritage. I pray that will be true of our church. Be a, be a praying church. Not sitting there saying, we know all the answers, and I'll give you a quick little answer. No, I'm going to pray for you as I tell you what I, what I know the truth to say, that God will reply to your heart. And I would, again, offer us to say that's something we certainly can strive toward as making further progress than we have in the past. Amen? We all have areas to grow in when it comes to pray. But God can help us, and we're committed to that as a church. Very quickly here, and I hesitate to get into even point number three. I feel like we've could easily have taken more time with some of these other things. But real quickly, I want to touch on some insights I've gained. As I kept reading, Paul mentioned, here's what I'm going to do. This is my goal of ministry, verse 28 of chapter 1. But then what does he say? So one of the basic elements of Christian maturity gives him in chapters 2, verses 1 to 3. Fascinating here. Christian maturity does not have to do, and hear me out now, Christian maturity does not have to be, it's not about looking right on the outside. Our whole society is so bent in that direction. It's all about looks. It's all about having this certain, you know, appearance. I'm about ready to gag. I'm so tired of people trying to look perfect. We are not perfect people. We all have moles. We all have, you know, things that are just everything about us. We have skin spots on our skin, aging spots. I mean, come on. We all have weird hairs and stuff. It just happens. We're not perfect crooked teeth, whatever it is. The point of this is what? We're not designed, the goal of, of, of Christian maturity is not to look good on the outside and perform or performing all these various pious acts so that people notice you. But the text in Colossians 4, 1, 1, uh, 1 to 12, verse 12 there, when, when, when uh, Epaphras is praying, we might have what? One element of Christian maturity is that we might have what? Full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith. Mature believers are secure in standing in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 2 of Colossians. He says they might be what? Um, Fullest assurance of understanding. Did you notice that? The point here is what? We're going to be fully convinced, not only of the trustworthiness of the Scriptures, but we also are 
convinced of the trustworthiness of God. And as you continue to mature in the faith, we become convinced that, God, I can trust you, and God, your word is trustworthy, and I'm banking on it. That's what a mature believer is doing. Well, I don't know what this alarm's going off is, but we're all wondering, right? I'm going to keep going until we're done here. Hey, went off. Okay, very good. Another element of maturity, chapter 2, verse 2. Encouragement in your heart. If the gospel is not bringing you encouragement, my friend, then you're not holding on to the true gospel. The encouragement will expose, the gospel will expose your sin, but it will lead you to Christ, the cure for your, for your uh, guilt and sin and shame. And rather than becoming hopeless and despairing in our hearts, mature followers of Jesus have hearts that are strong in faith. They're not plagued by continuous doubts. I'm not saying an occasional doubt, but, but, but not continuous doubts as gripping our hearts. And so having a heart that's encouraged, that's what I'm praying for, hoping that God will work among us. Another element of maturity in Christ, notice that verse 2 again, is knit together in love. That is, my life is going to be joined together with other believers. I am not going to become a lone ranger Christian. Off living on my own, trying to just sort of keep my sins quiet under the radar, but I'm going to be what? I'm going to be seeking out, involving myself, interacting with my family, my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it means to be a mature believer. I am a person who is what? Not involved in jealousy in my heart toward other believers, and therefore bitter for long periods of time because I'm sort of an immature believer. I have a spirit of competition. No, no, no. A mature believer is going to what? The Spirit is going to work in me that I want to have a unity with other believers, and we're going to practice together the commands of the Scriptures that tell me in the New Testament to love one another, to pray for one another, serve one another, accept one another, admonish one another, all the one another is. And we do it on a deeper level so that my relationship to other believers is that what? We express forgiveness to each other. We deal with the real sin issues of our hearts. And we are people who live the life of Christ before each other by the power of Christ, as we say, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, last one, and then we'll just call this to an end here. Verses 4 and 5 of of the same uh, chapter 2. Further element of maturity of Christ is that over time, we will enjoy spiritual stability. Spiritual stability. Whereas believers, we will treasure the gospel truths. We're going to bear witness by what? Perseverance and the evidence in our lives of this idea of persistence in following Jesus. I'm not going to give up when things get hard. And when I take a stand for following Christ, and that's going to have to happen at some point, folks, you're going to have to take a stand on something or somewhere, or some issue, is that as we take a stand, one of the hallmarks of a mature believer is I'm willing to suffer for the truth. I'm sorry, but I'm not compromising this area. I'm taking my stand. I'm going to deal with it. Because what? Because the gospel has so changed my convictions, my heart, and I want to please Jesus that I'm just not going to compromise his word. I'm not going to compromise his, his name and his reputation in these areas. And so chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, we're not going to move away from the hope of the gospel. I'm not going to move away from that. I'm going to stick with it no matter what. I'm going to stand shoulder to shoulder with other believers as we follow Christ, even though we might be ridiculed, might be op- opposed, have various forms of persecution. And my folks, let me tell you, it's coming down the pike in our culture. If you affirm biblical truth with regard to understanding uh, the whole realm of human sexuality, you're going to have, at some point, even when your heart is full of love, 
for people who are involved in various forms of compromise and brokenness and sexual sin, you are going to be, at some point, the target of people who say you are full of hate. And they'll accuse you of all kinds of things that are not true of you as you hold to the standards and truths of God's word. And so the point is what? We're going to take a stand, say, Lord, this is your truth. I'm not compromising because I have been changed by the gospel. Well, let's pray. Oh, Father, how we have such a high attainment of goal before us to see broken, ruined sinners brought to life in Christ and then through the process of the Spirit's work, through the application of the Word of God and involvement in the body of Christ, Lord, to see people become more and more like Jesus, being transformed by the gospel and being brought to full maturity of faith in Christ. Lord, who is capable of these things? Who's worthy of pulling this off? Lord, surely it's not us in our own strength. We desperately need you to work this among us in our church. And Lord, I pray that you might stir our hearts up in this next year that as we review the wonders of the gospel, that you might move us forward, Lord. Help us to grow in Christ's likeness. Help us to truly apply the gospel truths to the areas and struggles of our hearts and that we might not be further fragmented from other believers, that we might join together with our brothers and sisters in Christ and and find grace and strength together as we see you working in us to make us more like Jesus so that, Lord, we might not boast in ourselves, but that we might make our boast in you in glorifying you, showing forth the greatness of your grace, your love, and your mercy shown to us in the gospel. Lord, I pray that our moments together around the table here might bring hope and encouragement to our hearts to see and look back, what, what have you done thus far in our hearts and where we like to take us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.